The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ron Schmelzer. And thank you all very much for listening to our AI Today podcast. We are well over 200 episodes and into our fourth year. And we have interviewed some really phenomenal people, covered some really big insights into what's been happening in AI and, of course, the evolving markets, and been diving deep into how AI has been applied to various different industries. I don't know if you've heard any of our use cases, uh, series that we've done. Go back. I mean, we continue to get uh, feedback about things we've done in industries like fashion and construction and real estate. You know, you'd be thinking, well, AI is all about autonomous vehicles and, uh, you know, recognition systems and the cool things we can do with NLP. But the thing is, is like, you know, it's being adopted in literally every industry, even the ones that go back thousands and thousands of years, right? So uh, I encourage you to listen to, to all of our podcasts. If you aren't subscribed, please do subscribe and go back and listen to our huge library that goes all the way back many years years now on on our what's been happening here in AI. So, um, you know, our guest today is Sagar Indurkia, who is at Virtualytics, and we really want to thank him so much for joining us here. So let's uh, thank you so much for joining us here on AI Today podcast. Thank you. And it's wonderful to join you today as well. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. You know, at AI Today Podcast, we're always excited when we have interviews because we get to see what's really happening, um, you know, today in industry with artificial intelligence. So I'm excited for this podcast. I want to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at Virtualytics. Uh, thank you. Uh, yes, so my name is uh, Saga Ndurkia. And uh, I'm the head of natural language processing at Virtualytics. So a little bit of uh, how I got here. Uh, prior to joining Virtualytics, I was uh, completing my PhD in computer science with a focus on computational linguistics at MIT, uh, where I uh, studied under my advisor, uh, Professor Robert Berwick. Uh, so while I was there, uh, I had time to uh, focus deeply on studying how to develop cognitively faithful models of language acquisition. And I also had a chance to really dive into uh, uh, developing methods for black box analysis of NLP models. Uh, during my time in uh, grad school, I had uh, the opportunity to actually uh, both intern and eventually uh, con uh, do some contract work for various uh, DOD interfacing companies. And uh, that got me a little bit excited in you know, um, uh, working on these different defense projects. And so I saw that Virtualytics was in that space, and that's what got me excited to uh, join them. Uh, so I joined uh, last year, and since then, I've been uh, having fun working on both a couple of interesting DoD projects involving natural language processing, um, and I also uh, head the development of the AI functionality for our flagship product, product uh, Virtualytics Immersive Platform, or VIP. Well, that's really interesting. I know that we spend a lot of time looking at the applications of natural language processing and and all sorts of other aspects of pattern recognition, which is you know AI system, machine learning systems are particularly uh, good at. I mean, especially when you have lots of data <laughs> to train these systems on. That's sort of the core of it. And you know the data is so important. I mean, that's something we spend a lot of time 
at our Data for AI community. It started as a multi-day conference, online conference in 2020. And we since realized that like 80% or more of AI projects are spent dealing with data, sourcing data, data preparation, data labeling and annotation, data quality, moving data around, data engineering, that we have a whole community focused on, on that. So for our listeners, it's a free online community. You're welcome to join us. If you go to uh, data AI conf, data AI conf.com, you can see a lot of these online presentations, including the presentations from our guests here. It's Virtualytics, who are one of our sponsors of the Data for AI conference. And, and we've addressed a lot of these data side issues. So thinking for our listeners here, who, who may be at various levels of technical uh, depth with AI and machine learning, you know, what do you see as some of the primary challenges for AI and machine learning adoption, especially for non-technical users? Yeah, sure. So I think there's a, a couple of different uh, hurdles and I'll just uh, take them point by point. Uh, so the first, and I think you know, a lot of people who have tried applying AI methods have run into this, is actually uh, getting your data and getting it into the right form and uh, you know, being able to clean it up, figuring out if you have the right kind of data, if you have enough data. Um, and I think that's, that's something that um, for any of these different AI projects, you know, you, you can hit a wall right away if you haven't put in the time and thought into that, into uh, sort of curating the data that you're going to use. But once you once you get a little past that and you say, okay, you're going to train an AI model uh, with this data uh, that you've collected, uh, the next question is, how do you trust the results or the output of this model? And this is important because when you are working with one of these, uh, you know, modern AI solutions, oftentimes, like say a, you know, some kind of a deep learning solution, um, it can at times be a black box, and that means that if you have to make decisions based on the outputs of your model, how are you supposed to, you know, trust the uh, the decisions you're going to make if you don't understand how the model works? And so that's another big focal point uh, that I think a lot of people, uh, an issue that a lot of people run into. Uh, when trying to apply AI methods is that you, know, you put your data into the model, the model comes out, it seems to make some good predictions on some example data sets, and then you start applying it in the wild. And sometimes the predictions that it's making, they don't, you know, sometimes they don't quite make sense. And you start to worry, like, can I really trust this thing? Uh, so figuring out how you're going to uh, evaluate your models so that you can really trust the outputs, this is really important. And if you don't do that, that, that can be another hurdle you run into. Um, another one that kind of builds on that is explaining the results to you know the key stakeholders. Uh, so again, you know if you've spent all this money building out this sophisticated AI model and it makes some particular prediction or it makes uh, some classification and you want to make some kind of a business decision on the basis of that, uh, typically you're not going to make that business decision on your own. You're going to actually have to persuade a, a set of key stakeholders. Um, to you know, enable you to make that particular decision. And doing that requires that you have to be able to explain how your model works so that they also trust your model, right? So you may be familiar with the model that you've set up, um, but especially if you're the one who's like, you know, the AI engineer developing this, but the key stakeholders oftentimes aren't necessarily AI engineers. And so you have to figure out a way to sort of uh, bring the model down to earth and explain to them, you know, sort of how what the inputs are, what the outputs are, and how to trust um, the predictions that the model is making. Um, I think another one is uh, just having a clear expectation of model performance. Uh, I think that sometimes in this new wave of uh, 
AI developments that are happening in the last five, 10 years. Uh, there's sort of a, a hype curve that people are uh, uh, getting on a hype train where they hear about AI being able to do all these fantastic things. Um, and so then they bring AI into their own organization and want to apply it. And they haven't yet thought through carefully of like, what are realistic expectations, right? Like if you, if you train an AI, you know, maybe it's able to get, make the right prediction, you know, 95% of the time, but perhaps, you know, in your particular business context, uh, you need to, to actually be closer to 99% accuracy or higher um, because maybe those 5% of errors that your model otherwise makes, they're going to be just too costly for you to deal with. So sort of thinking through, you know, this idea of not just let's build an AI uh, model and use in our business, but thinking a couple steps ahead of suppose I'm successful in being able to build some kind of an AI model with the data I've collected, you know, what are the downstream implications? Have I thought through those as well? That's some great insights because I think that not everybody thinks about that, you know, and it's like, make sure that you involve the stakeholders. Like you said, make sure that people really will adopt this. Make sure that you're not over-promising and under-delivering on what this AI can actually do. And then make sure that you're thinking about all those impl implications that can happen farther down the road. Um, so I think that's super important. And I that's a great point that, you know, you bring that up and really encourage people to think about that. And AI is a transformative technology. Like with any transformative technology, there's going to be, you know, some disruption, but it allows companies to also, you know, possibly become more efficient, especially if they're, you know, thinking long-term. We always say at Cognolytica, start small, think big and iterate often. So, you know, start small, don't bite off more than you can chew, but think big. So make sure that, you know, you're actually solving real business problems um, and, you know, thinking long-term about what you can do. So with this transformative technology and, you know, such as artificial intelligence and virtual reality as well, how does this allow companies to gain actionable insights from their data? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so I'll, I'll give a breakdown of how I uh, sort of approach this question in the context of when I'm uh, developing some of the AI functionality for uh, the Virtualytics Immersive platform. So uh, I, I think of it as there's these four stages of uh, sort of understanding. So, and, and this pertains to how can you use AI, um, you know, to gain some kind of understanding or actionable insight um, you know, from like the data that you have in your company. So at, at a basic level, uh, you can use artificial intelligence to understand what is happening, right? And that's like a very uh, sort of starting point analysis of your data. This is sometimes referred to as descriptive analytics. Um, so then taking it one step a little further, um, you can use AI to try to understand why something has happened, right? So in the first step with descriptive analytics, uh, you're trying to, you know, just get a sense of, you know, what is actively happening, you know, in the here and now, or what has happened, you know, some time ago with your data. But the next question, the next stage, uh, which is explanatory uh, analytics, is trying to understand why it is that uh, this happened, what factors were involved in some event of interest uh, happening. Um, so then taking, so that's the second stage. The third stage um, is sometimes referred to as predictive analytics, right? And this is where you want to understand uh, what will happen, right? So you want to be able to predict a little bit into the future. 
And this is where the uh, sometimes the actionable insights, you know, start to arise because now that you understand what's happening and why it's happening, if you can understand what's going to happen a little bit into the future, um, you know, you can start to make decisions uh, based on that uh, forecasting so that you can try and alter things to, you know, happen in the future in the way that you want. So we've gone through descriptive analytics, explanatory analytics, predictive analytics, and then the last one, uh, which is what I would consider sort of the most advanced application of AI, one of the most difficult for a, a company to achieve, is prescriptive analytics. Uh, and this is where you want to use AI to understand what you should do next to positively impact your business goals. So in the in the third stage of predictive analytics, you're trying to predict in, you know, what is going to happen in the future. At the fourth level, you're trying to figure out what you should do now, right? What business decisions you should make so that what happens in the future aligns with the interest of your business. Uh, so that that like sort of four stages uh, provides uh, sort of a matrix in which you can like break down your AI efforts and say, you know, whatever I'm building within my company or whatever AI solution I'm using, which of these different stages does it fall in? Sometimes it will fall into several different stages. Yeah, that's something that we've been spending a lot of time looking at these stages, the stages of AI projects, the stages of dealing with data and data cleansing and all the various aspects of making these systems work. And I know that, you know, in this podcast, we've been using somewhat interchangeably, you know, the terms AI and machine learning, but clearly they're not interchangeable. Machine learning is a particular aspect of, of AI and specifically deals with giving the mach machines the ability to learn from experience, which is extremely important. That's what we do as, as, as humans. You know, we have to, and the only way to, to recognize patterns is to, to take data and to identify those patterns and make meaningful relationships. But of course, we need to do more than just learning. We need to apply that learning and adapt that learning to new situations. This is kind of, this is where we go beyond machine learning to machine reasoning and all these aspects of, of, of action and effect. But where we are right now, the reason why we talk about machine learning so much right now is, is this is kind of where we are at the, at the frontiers of evolution of, of making AI work, which we've been trying to do for decades. And, and part of this whole staging is something we spend a lot of time going into. I know a lot of our listeners may know this, but the most of the time that we spend at Cognolytica is in educating and providing guidance to enterprises and governments and businesses, large and small alike. And part of this is around a methodology that has evolved over the past two decades. This is not something, you know, <laughs> the thing about AI is it always feels new. But AI goes back the whole history of computing, back to the 50s, right? And we've been trying to accomplish these goals, you know, throughout the, the evolution of, of computers and internet and even before all that, right? The big data. So, you know, as part of that, you know, we, we have uh, developed and evolved the, the methodology called the Cognitive Project Management for AI Methodology, CPMEI, which is something that we do at our executive level education and training. So for our listeners, if you're interested in this, you're hearing these concepts, maybe you don't know what NLP is, maybe you do know what it is, maybe you don't know what AI machine learning is, and you hear about this need to basically stage projects in the right order to guarantee success. We've been hearing from some really interesting uh, people that we've interviewed right here on the AI Today podcast, chief data officers from major banks and major consumer packaged goods companies and, you know, industries of all types. And they are all just, a lot of them are, are struggling with project iteration. Many of them have gone through our executive level education and it's uh, uh, focused on AI, machine learning and cognitive technologies and includes certification on the CPMAI methodology, which is the best practices approach for implementing AI machine learning, which is itself 
based on CRISPDM, which has been around for about two decades. So if you're looking for more information about this for our listeners, the best practices and methodologies for doing AI projects right, you should definitely check out the education uh, at courses.cognolytica.com. We have put, uh, there are over hundreds of certified CPMAI trainees from large organizations and small alike who have gone through the methodology and gotten certified in CPMAI to build world-class AI implementations. So there was a little bit of a, of a plug there, but I do want to, this idea of, of, of um, it's not about the technology, it's all about the data, but to do the data right really requires doing things in the right order. And actually a lot of it really has to do with methodology. And you know, the word methodology may seem so academic to people, but it's extremely important to do things in the right order. That's how you do, do things reliably and repeatedly. But one of the yeah, other, things, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead, Sarkar. So, sorry, if I may just say like on the point of uh, methodology, I think the reason why it's very, very important uh, to sometimes try to do things you know, in, in this particular ordering is because you can make large investments of capital and you can find out later that you've misallocated it because you know you didn't sort of think through a couple of steps downstream into like how the model that you're going to build and train which may you know involve uh, allocating a lot of uh, compute time which can be expensive or collecting a lot of data which can be expensive um, how how those models are going to be used and whether they're going to be used in a way that's actually useful for your business um, one, one thing that just uh, some heuristics uh, that I took notes on uh, that I, I, I often employ is because, uh, you know, I'm trained as a scientist. So I'm a little bit skeptical in nature when I when someone presents an AI model to me. Right. And it takes me a little while to trust that this AI model is something that I could actually rely on. Uh, so I would say that if you're in a position where someone's coming to you and trying to sell some kind of an AI model and saying, you know, if you're willing to invest some capital, we can set up this AI model within your business and you can um, employ it, is uh, have examples of inputs that you expect the model to perform well on. Um, and that can take a little bit of time actually to construct, but like before you invest too much capital in trying to build a uh, particular AI model uh, and implement it, some kind of a pipeline in your business, it's good to build some kind of a prototype and devote a lot of time to coming up with you know, clear examples that cover the domain of like different types of inputs you'd expect the model to take. And before you run the model, ask yourself, what kinds of outputs would I expect for each of these inputs? These inputs are representative of what I expect typically go, to go into the model. And then uh, you can actually measure, you know, what the model outputs with what your sort of pre-registered expectations were. Um, I think this is an important exercise to go through. It de definitely takes a little bit of time and you know, thought and energy, but it's a worthwhile investment uh, because otherwise, um, you know, you may uh, burn quite a lot of cash, to put it bluntly, uh, before you find out suddenly that uh, your investments didn't really pay out and the model that you've built and trained, you know, it doesn't really output, uh, it doesn't meet expectations with respect to making the types of predictions or classifications that you were expecting at an accuracy that's acceptable. Uh, another point that I would uh, bring up is um, going back to like those four stages, uh, I want to point out that you know not every business needs to have all of those four stages covered, right? For some businesses, just having a clear understanding of you know what is happening, why it's happening, that's enough, right? They're not necessarily in the business of doing some kind of you know uh, uh, predictive work. Um, for other businesses, 
you know, it is worthwhile to make this investment of, you know, developing out some kind of prescriptive analytics model that can tell them, uh, you know, this, th these are the types of business moves that you should be making, and here's the reasoning why. Um, but uh, along those lines, when trying to decide, you know, what, what do you want to, uh, if someone says, like, we should use AI in our business, you know, this is exciting, all the other companies are doing it, and they, I read about this all the time in the newspaper that they're having these exciting gains, like, why don't we try using AI? Uh, if you're if you're going to try developing an AI pipeline within your business, you should also ask yourself, you know, what are your strengths? Uh, you know, different companies have different strengths. Whether they be you have a you know a really solid talent base of AI engineers already, or maybe not, right? How much time do you have to explore this, right? How much capital do you have? How much data do you have? Uh, what does your infrastructure look like? And you know, do you have a team of engineers who can leverage some of the the infrastructure that might be accessible through the cloud? So, you know, for every company, there's going, you're going to have some different combination of strengths and weaknesses um, for these, these different factors that I was listing. And you should try to find an AI solution that's going to let you take advantage of your strengths, but not, you know, hinder you with your weaknesses. So that may, that may mean that, for example, you don't have a lot of data, but you do have a lot of capital. And so perhaps you can, you know, uh, either invest money in starting the process of collecting more data, or perhaps the data that you have isn't correctly annotated for the purposes of your model. So you can invest capital in you know, hiring a team of uh, people to you know, start annotating some of that data. Or for example, you know, maybe you have time, right? But you, and you have capital, but you don't have the data. So you say, okay, I'm going to you know, in, start the investment of capital now to start collecting data and wait a while uh, because that's a play I can make. Um, so just something to consider. Some of it's starting to sink in that um, that's like thinking about sort of more than just, you know, the the model and the process of building. And that's actually a very small tip of this iceberg that's really making a lot of this work. And a lot of this is sort of the harder stuff. And actually, honestly, the less sexy stuff and the stuff that just takes time and effort, which is, you know, getting data to be kind of where you need it to be. I, I agree. And while it may not be as exciting sometimes, you know, sometimes for an AI project, the actual model development and the cool, sexy AI work is actually a very small percentage of the actual time and energy spent, maybe 10%, 15% of the project. A lot of the time is actually spent on, you know, setting things up, so setting yourself up to succeed, right? Collecting the right data, sort of bringing key stakeholders in early to set expectations of what's realistic, what's not. Uh, thinking downstream of, you know, uh, with, with the model that I deploy, you know, is it going to be able to, is it an explainable model, right? So that when it starts making predictions and those predictions are great and people are excited, and then one of the stakeholders says, hang on, I don't really understand how this black box works. I'm not comfortable making decisions based on the outputs of this black box. You know, have you picked a model that is going to have, you know, be sufficiently explainable to each of your key stakeholders so that you are still enabled to make those downstream business decisions based on the output of the model, right? And and even though that's not as exciting and right, it's not it, it's not necessarily as uh, fun. That's the part that actually allows you to take AI and have a powerful business impact. So you know the model development and uh, you know that engineering work is actually a very small part of like the a bigger effort uh, it takes to set up and. Uh, AI pipeline that you know delivers some real business value for you.
Well, this is fantastic. This is this is great. We got to have you like as a regular on our podcast because you're saying, you're saying all the, I mean, obviously you're saying all the right things, but it's but it's fantastic. This comes from your experience. Um, you know, I, you know, really, I all I have is sort of a follow up to that is really just talking about model transparency because I know that's one thing we haven't really dived too much into. And as you're saying, people are you're consuming these models that may be coming from third parties. So how do you know whether to trust them? And a lot of that has to do with transparency. Yeah. Um, so, a, cu- a couple of points on that. Um, uh, d- definitely, like again, like I said, I'm I'm somewhat skeptical when someone comes someone comes to me and says, you know, I've trained this uh, really cool, sexy AI model, and it makes these excellent predictions on this data set that I found over here. Uh, you know, we should we should start deploying it. I say, hang on, like. You know, I I really want to understand how this model works uh, before I trust it too much. So a couple, like sort of a checklist of things that you know I personally uh, uh, require go through. So one is I ask for a clear exposition on how the model works, um, and this is this is an exercise both in you know me learning how the model works sometimes because sometimes someone will use an AI model I'm not very familiar with, but I still have to take some responsibility for the implementation of that model. Um, But also it's an exercise for the AI engineer because I've seen all too often an excited engineer will pull off some open source model that they've heard is the latest and greatest coming out of some university or one of the bigger corporate research labs. And they'll say, oh, okay, like it's, you know, it seems straightforward to train up on some data that I have. I can see how it makes some predictions, like let's go. And I say, do you, do you know how this model works? You know, have you gone through and studied a little bit like, you know, how it works because if you don't know how it works, you can't really calibrate your expectations um, on how it should perform. Uh, so then another thing that I you know always ask for is okay, a clear exposition of what are the inputs and what are the outputs, right? And the the exposition on the inputs and outputs needs to be clear enough that a non-technical stakeholder can understand um, you know what what how it is that this machine uh, is going to work. And on uh, following up with that, I always ask for a clear explanation of what data was used to train the AI model. Um, so again, this this is something I've run into where you know an engineer will say, "I've got this great model, and I want to get it up and running as fast as possible." So I went and I found you know some data set online, uh, and it seems like you know it's it's a good match. So I've trained my model on it, and off we go. And I say, well. It's worth actually spending a while, you know, doing a little bit of an analysis uh, on the data set they're using to train your model uh, to understand: are there certain biases in the in the training data? Do those are those biases going to lead your model to make, you know, uh, wildly off predictions when it's actually being deployed on real world data, right? So it's some from my experience, it's actually worth spending more time analyzing the training data. And getting a se- uh, sense of like its various different statistical properties and the different biases in the training data, uh, than just doing the model development because you can sink a lot of time into developing a model that works well on, you know, a poor training set of data, and then when you deploy that model, you know, it's it's not quite so useful. Um, and another point that I would uh, bring up is. Uh, explainable models. So you know, when you when you develop a model, you need to determine what degree of explainability do your key stakeholders need. And there are different ways to approach this. One way is you can say, you know, I'm going to 
purposely choose a simpler AI model. Maybe it's not so, uh, you know, it's it's not in fashion right now. It's not coming, you know, hot off the presses. Maybe this is a this is an AI technique that was developed two or three decades ago, right? But it's because sometimes the simpler models are easier to understand and uh, they're much more transparent. Um, on the other hand, you could take the approach of post hoc uh, application of uh, explainability. Uh, so, for example, um, in Virtualytics, one of the exciting projects that we're working on is uh, network explainability, where we have these algorithms for uh, computing clusterings of network graphs. And uh, folks will ask, you know, what do each of these, you know, it's clear that there are these communities uh, within the data. You've found these different clusters, and that's cool. That's sort of an insight. But what are these clusters about? And so we've been working on developing different algorithms for being able to label all of these different uh, clusters and give like a nice, succinct English description of, you know, what are the particular properties that the users in a particular community uh, exhibit? And so this is something that allows people to then go beyond just, oh, it's it's interesting that the, you know, the, uh, the different members of the this network graph cluster together nicely, um, it allows them to actually say, okay, Nick, now I understand what these clusters are about. And that's like key to bring, allowing people to actually, you know, get gain some actionable business insight from that. Um, so, you know, thinking through the explainability angle of your model, it's also really important. And then the last point I wanted to make, which I think is actually perhaps the most important, and it's it served me well time and time again, is um, I, what I call the three by three approach. So uh, I, I learned this when I was um, teeing actually in the, in graduate school. Um, so I was uh, the, serving as the a TA for the graduate natural language processing class and taught by my advisor, uh, Professor Berwick. And so we would have each of the students team up in groups of two or three, and they would uh, be asked to develop some kind of a natural language processing model. And many of them would want to develop a model using some kind of fancy, sophisticated technique that had been you know, recently advanced, like some kind of a sequence-to-sequence -sequence deep learning model, for example, to do sentiment analysis, let's say. And so, uh, you know, I, I would ask them then, because you know, always approaching this from a sort of skeptical mindset, I would say, well, how do you know? Like, if we're doing rigorous engineering, you know, how do you know when your model works and doesn't work, right? It's one thing for your model to like have some cool uh, predictions on some interesting inputs, but how do we make this whole process more rigorous? And so the approach that I took is I would say, the first thing that you have to do is you have to give me three clear examples of inputs that you can feed into your model. And the model is going to output what you would expect it to, right? So you're showing where the model works. Then I would ask them, to show me three examples of inputs where the model's output is catastrophically wrong, right? And so first we went through three examples that where the model works, then we find three examples where the model fails catastrophically. And then the last set of three examples that I asked for is, show me three examples where the output of the model is wrong, but interesting. So, it's an, it's an input, it's a set of three inputs where you would expect, based on your understanding of the model, that it should probably be able to get the right answer. And it sometimes partially gets the right answer or gets close to the right answer, but not quite. And the reason I ask for this is because 
the, you're basically trying to delineate the boundary of where this model succeeds and where this model fails, right? And the, the first three inputs that I asked for, you know, those are highlighting a little bit of the region where the model is able to succeed, it's able to make the right prediction or you know, have the right output. The second set is showing the, air, the region uh, where the model fails, right? And the third set of inputs I asked for, uh, those examples, those are basically the boundary, right? And what I encourage uh, and effectively was requiring all the different student teams to do is I said, if you want to say that you are doing rigorous engineering, right? You're not just pulling some model off the internet, pulling some training data off the internet, slapping it together over the weekend, and then just you know burning a bunch of computer time, right? Which you know I, they didn't have to pay for at the time, but I said in the real world, like this could be a, a substantial investment of capital that you are like you know spending uh, all this compute time to train these models. Um, I said before before you do this, like I want you to, you know, list down these this three by three matrix, and it doesn't just have to be three examples; it could be a lot more, and and uh, put some thought into it, right? So don't just pick three examples where you know the model works, but you know they're kind of trivial examples. Like really, you know, take uh, take things to the next level. Try to find uh, you know a range of inputs that really exercises the model. And sometimes, especially in the context of natural language processing, uh, it really helps to have uh, some prior knowledge of the domain, to have some prior knowledge of you know, uh, syntax and understanding like this is the range of different types of uh, sentences uh, that one is likely to encounter. Um, and so then you can really exercise this model and really develop like a rigorous understanding of where is this model going to work? Where is this model going to fail? Uh, and from my perspective, that's that's how you do good engineering work. Is you know, it's it's the most the most important thing when someone comes to me and says, "I've built out this model." It's not showing me a couple examples that are very you know simple or trivial where the model makes a correct prediction. It's being able to show me interesting examples where the model fails, because then I know that that person has really investigated this model and really taken the time to understand. You know where the model is going to work, where the model is not going to work, so that we can then make a rational engineering decision on that basis. Do we want to deploy the model in this scenario or that scenario? Or if some stakeholder comes and says suddenly, "Oh, we've input, you know, we've fed these inputs into the model and it's not performing uh, as expected. What's going on now?" And, you know, we're making business decisions on that. You have to be able to point back and say, "Okay, we did our homework. You know, we weren't expecting this model that we've deployed to handle those particular sets of inputs. And maybe this is how we have to adjust the model to handle those inputs. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, that's usually like one of the things that I always look for right away when, when I approach a machine learning or NLP model. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, for us, as we're thinking about this methodology, you know, that it's really actually you'd have to do the very first phase, like before you get into understanding the, the the data and before you get into preparing the data, of course, and, you know, you know, that's step two and phase two and phase three. And then, of course, phase four is like building the model and phase five is evaluating the model and phase six is is basically a model deployment, model operationalization. That phase one is the business understanding. You might think, oh, well, that's just you know, coming up with the needs analysis. I'm like, yes, but it also is determining at the beginning what your expectations are. 
for this thing. So I like this three by three approach. This is really interesting. It adds to the to the mix. You know, we tell people it's part of the methodology to do things like you know what is your expected um, you know acceptable criteria for things like model performance and accuracy and things like that. But but having these very specific examples to say is no, it's not just the general case. It needs to be ninety five percent accurate or whatever. It's like it needs to f- succeed on these three examples. It needs to fail on these three examples, and it needs to give me something interesting on these three. Uh, it's really kind of, it's kind of a cool perspective. I like that. And 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 just to clarify, we're not saying that the model has to fail on these three. What we're really telling the you know the AI engineer and you know the person who's evaluating the input data, right? Sort of the domain of data from which the training data is being drawn and that which eventually the, you know, the real-time uh, data that we're going to use in, in production is being drawn from is to say, we want you to, you know, this model seems to work some of the time, right? And you claim that it works a lot of the time. That's why you're very excited. You want to deploy this. So in asking someone to find interesting examples where the model fails, it, it's really actually a, a, a quick sanity check of, you know, have you actually done your homework and actually gone out and tried to find these interesting examples uh, where the model fails? And when, when you do that, you know, it's not just pick three random examples where the model fails. Show me three different types of examples and you know, tell me something interesting about these examples, right? Like what, what is it that distinguishes these examples uh, from your typical examples such that you say, huh, like for example, uh, let's say with natural language data, right? You may find out that uh, sometimes your model, when you have passive sentences, uh, the natural language processing model provides the wrong output, right? And you would say, okay, there's something interesting. Like I've noticed that you know when I have examples with passive constructions, the model fails. Or for example, you may say, um, when you have a certain level of embedded sentence structure in a sentence, you start to notice that the model fails. And this connects back to investigating your data because when when someone starts to see, oh, the model doesn't do really well on certain types of sentences, right? Sentences that have this pattern of having an embedded sentence in the object position, say, they will go back into their training data and they will say, let me look to see how many actual sentences had some degree of embedded structure or how many sentences in my training data had uh, you know, passive constructions present. And so there's this interplay back and forth, right? And you realize, oh, maybe I need to augment my training data or expand it. Uh, and then you go back and you retrain your model and you realize, okay, now some of those sentences are being handled correctly, right? And and so this back and forth uh, process, you know, you it's sort of a, it's a cyclical process that you keep iterating again and again and improving the model. And this is what I would ask the student groups to do over the course of a semester, right? As they would work on their project, I would say, Let's have this rational methodology for both understanding how it is that our model uh, works, where it works, where it doesn't. And then let's leverage that inf- that knowledge you're gaining from this process to improve your model, right? And to go back and with, you know, new when, when you look at the training data, if you don't know what you're looking for, you will often you know, miss a lot of things. And how do you know what to look for? Well, part of it is you have to go and do a little bit of detective work to see where your model fails. Um, and this process is hard. It's it's not easy, right? But you know this sort of uh, iterative process. Uh, it, it takes a lot of uh, you know energy and determination, but it, it's worthwhile because you gain a deep understanding both of the data that you're using uh, to train your model and the you know the power of the model itself. 
Yeah, these are some great insights. And this podcast has been so incredible. So thank you so much. It, we've had some really great back and forth. And with all our guests on our podcast, we like to ask this question as a final note, because we always get such varied responses. And I'm really looking forward to yours based on the conversation that we've had. As a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations and beyond? Um, I think that in terms of the future of AI, so looking at different horizons, uh, in the short term, I think what's going to be interesting is that a lot of companies are now finally starting to get to the stage where they've been able to collect sufficient data that they you know, understand, and they can start to apply some of these uh, new AI techniques that are being developed, especially these AI techniques that are a little bit data hungry, like some of the uh, newer uh deep learning uh, methods. Uh, and it's interesting to see how they're going to apply those. Um, I think some of the advances, uh, like for example, recently in the last few years, we saw the development of um, AlphaGo coming out of DeepMind. Uh, that, that, was, that was pretty uh, shocking um, to see that result because I think that was a result we weren't predicting uh, to happen in, you know, in the next few decades. And so that it suddenly happened, uh, that, that shook me up a little bit. And I started wondering, are we going to like again and again start to see these problems that we thought were decades away from being solved, uh, you know, suddenly get solved um, right under our noses? And how is that going to sort of shake up the industry, right? Um, because I think a lot of times, you know, industry, uh, different companies, they're watching each other and the pieces on the chessboard are moving fairly slowly. But with the development of these new AI methods, um, especially also as like the access to the infrastructure, right? And the cloud is scaled up. Um, we're, I think we're going to see some of the, the pieces on the chessboard move a lot faster and people are going to have to react to that. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to see what's going to uh, come in that sense. Um, looking out a little further ahead, um, I think one, of, one area that I'm very interested in is trying to see if uh, eventually some of the developments in artificial intelligence, uh, you know, they can eventually lead to almost a, a general artificial intelligence or human-like artificial intelligence. And, and when I was younger, that was what kind of drove me into the field. I was very excited about this idea of like building machines that could think like human beings. It's part of why I went into natural language processing, because I thought it'd be interesting to be able to talk to a computer and really, you know, uh, discuss like deep subjects with, with a machine. Um, but I, what I've learned uh, in the course of my studies and just my experience, um, and I think this is something many others have pointed out, is uh, it's it's hard to, in, in machine learning, you know, you have this clear idea if you have these inputs, you have these outputs, you're trying to build some kind of predictive model, let's say, or some kind of classifier. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty, in that sense, straightforward of, you know, what it is that your objective is. But with general artificial intelligence um, or you know, human-like AI, it's not really clear what the goal is because we don't really understand currently um, a lot of what human cognition involves. And so what I'm excited to see is how, as we continue to see these advances in cognitive science and in uh, neuroscience and other related fields, um, what, uh, what artificial intelligence will be able to learn uh, from those fields and draw in. Um, and I, I would say that I think in some sense, when we look out further ahead, uh, my personal perspective is that artificial intelligence is, is like a mirror uh, and we can use it 
to learn more about ourselves. So when we try to build a machine that can think like a human, it's almost like we hold it up and it's a mirror in which we can ask, we can sort of try to model our own understanding of how human cognition works. Uh, and that, that is why, you know, during my uh, graduate studies, I, I was so lucky to have a chance to work on uh, developing cognitively faithful uh, models of language acquisition. So, you know, these are models that try to respect the different constraints that a human being has when they are, uh, you know, learning from the world. And it tries to uh, respect the different uh, problems that, you know, human cognition has to be able to solve. Um, so that's maybe thinking more on the science side of uh, artificial intelligence and how it, how it blends into cognitive sciences. But I think that's going to be very exciting. And the, the third thing that always strikes me is just advances in hardware. This is something that I've observed uh, in other fields. Um, when there are, you know, powerful advances in hardware, like, uh, for example, um, with, uh, you know, the developments in optics and the ability to uh, make um, these CMOS sensors very, very uh, much smaller and have higher resolution, this had an impact on sequencing right, and being able to sequence longer and longer pieces of DNA. And that in turn had a big impact on our ability to learn um, from uh, genomics. And so I think it's the same thing we're seeing in artificial intelligence. There's this introduction of GPUs technologies. And so we saw this you know, profound shift in what types of models we could build. And what I'm excited to see in the coming years and decades is what other uh, powerful new hardware advances uh, come about and how we're able to leverage those to build new types of AI models. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think this is kind of this is kind of where we've been with artificial intelligence. I think as mentioned since the very beginning, you know, since Turing and others, you know, had the this idea of uh, more intelligent machines, which of course led to in, indirectly and or maybe even directly the development of the first computers in part, you know, the, the generally programmable systems and thought that, you know, maybe you know, our brains worked like logical, <laughs> you know, deductive reasoning systems. But then, of course, you know, we realized that that they, they don't exactly. And then the first perceptrons in the 1950s and 60s, and we keep coming back to this, and you're right. And part of it is that we've have better hardware, we have better understanding, better algorithms, we have more data that we can chew on. And every time we sort of get closer, we get this like, it's like this glimmer of hope where we're like, maybe the realization of AI is closer than we think. It's like, it's like the... It comes up like there's this beacon and it says, ah, we're close. We can do these things we've never were able to do before that, you know, maybe we can get these autonomous systems and these vehicles and all these sorts of stuff. And it's so, and it feels so close, right? And the question is, it, it might be close. We might be one or two innovations away from making a reality, or there might be something. There might be something. It's, it's sort of like peeling the layers of a very large onion, right? Yeah. <laughs> you keep having this sensation of each time you peel a layer, you're like, well, I must be getting closer to the center. Uh, but you start to discover that each layer is its own set of problems, right? right. And I think that's that that's great. Also, if, for example, you're, you know, a student looking for like a, a thesis subject to explore, each layer of the onion is a new opportunity to study something. It's a new set of interesting problems. Um, but it, yeah, it, it will be interesting to see, you know, eventually do we peel off enough layers that you know, we get close to the center? Yeah. Um, I always go back to the dragonfly because I because this amazing insect, you know, that can fly around and hover and reproduce and, you know, feed itself and grow and molt. The brain size of the dragonfly is the, fits in the, the tip of a pin, right? 
There's no internet. There's no big data. There's no database. Nobody spent like, you know, so of course it's like, it's like, you know, the, the, the amazing intelligence of creatures that can basically hover and navigate the world better than your best drone, you know, with a brain, the size of, you know, a pinhead is just remarkable. And I think to myself, you know, that's, you know, kind of eventually we may figure it out, right? We have, we have a long way to go, I think. But maybe we I, 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 I think a great example of this that uh, has always puzzled me, something I want to also uh, study more myself and read up more on is is bees. So I think we've all in, encountered bees and you'll see that they'll travel off like a little scout. You will travel off some distance and find like a patch of flowers and then they fly back uh, to their hive. And, it, you know, people have observed that the bees will do this dance. Right. So a bunch of bees will come out. They'll watch the one bee do this like waggle dance. And somehow those bees will watch that dance. And they will suddenly understand where it is that they're supposed to uh, head off to find that patch of flowers. And sometimes the navigation that they do is pretty sophisticated. So it's it's amazing. How can a small, you know, insect so small, it still has this capability of being able to encode information and communicate it to, you know, an, another organism, and then that organism is able to act on it. Um, and so, so sometimes, you know, when when we think that, that that's why I've learned to. Uh, you know, be increasingly humbled by all these problems because I think of one day we want to try to model human cognition, but can we first try to model how like bees are able to communicate with one another? Uh, and that applies for so many of these different uh, animals. Um, they're able to solve so many interesting problems and we don't even understand how they work or able to do it. Uh, and so so the, the goal of being able to understand human cognition may be a ways off, but it's an exciting adventure nonetheless. Totally agree. So, you know, this was such an incredible podcast and I want to thank you for spending time and educating our audience. I know that we have all gained some valuable insights. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kathleen. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, including a link to our Data for AI community, a link to the Virtualytics presentation that we referenced earlier. It really was incredible. It's available on replay, so I encourage you to check it out if you did not attend live, and also to our education at courses.cognolytica.com. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at cognolytica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica, all rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.